Then we are gonna we can introduce Isaac Till to come on up and share with us. He's gonna bring his bride with us. I'll I'll give him the pleasure of introducing her. This, this young man's got a special place in my heart. He came as a little uh, older elementary, junior high age boy. He was a little short back then, and, but he was uh, pretty funny, pretty witty, very easy to love, and he's still pretty easy to love. He's, uh, we've, we've had lots of good memories, uh, youth conventions, missions trips, uh, lots of youth groups. He's, uh, he grew in worship leading and, and uh, his instrument playing, and uh, we've been so proud of him and uh, what he's uh, just following God and doing with his life. And so it's an honor, Isaac, to, and a privilege to have you share this morning. Happy to have you, and uh, go for it. This is Isabel, my lovely uh, wife, and we just got married, yeah. <laughs> we just got married a little over a month ago, uh, so we are super, super excited uh, to be here, and we are so grateful for this opportunity, so thank you um, for giving us this opportunity. Uh, so yeah, Pastor Mike gave a little bit of a rundown of my history here, um, but so we... Uh, staffed together at YWAM Montana uh, as part of the SBS, the School of Biblical Studies, and if you want to tell them about that. Yes, so this will be Isaac and I's both second year of staffing the School of Biblical Studies with YWAM Lakeside, Montana. And just to give you guys a little bit of an um, insight on what that school is, is it is a nine-month inductive Bible study method where we train around 60 students each year in the full content of the Bible. Our students read the whole Bible five times in nine months, so they are very busy. And the goal is, is that they would walk away as missionaries trained in sound doctrine and love for the Bible. That as they go out into the nations and preach the gospel, as they go out and impact their communities and their home churches, that the Bible is their foundation. Right? There's no other foundation that we want to lay our lives upon. And so that is our goal and our passion, is to see our next generation be trained in the knowledge of the Bible. And so when we do this school, we aren't asking, um, you know, we really try to... dive deep into the context of what the author meant when he wrote the scripture. And so that's a little bit about what Isaac will be sharing today in the book of Philippians. Um, Some of our daily roles are we teach, like Isaac's going to be teaching today. Um, We help serve our students in just practical things like making meals and cleaning up and admissions, finances, Um, and we also, both of our biggest passions is discipleship. We have these, all of these young students that are coming to us, and it's not through us, it's through, you know, the Holy Spirit through us, but we have a privilege of being able to disciple and walk with these students in really close quarters. We all live right next door to each other, so that's awesome. Um, And so that's both of our favorite parts is just seeing young people being transformed by the word of God. And so this morning, you guys are going to get a little bit of a taste of Isaac's teaching. Um, 
But it's really not Isaac's teaching that impresses me as much as he's just always the first person to take out the trash. He's always the first person to pick up work duties when no one else wants to. And the way he serves is the most impressive thing about him, not, not his teaching, even though it's amazing. So it's a privilege to be alive. introductions left and right. <laughs> so yeah, like she said, I will be giving a bit of a taste of how I will, how I teach and how, what I do in the SPS in Montana using uh, a passage in Philippians. So usually I'll teach the background of a book, I'll teach the key passages, any hard passages that are, that are in, that are in the book, and um, and then at the end or throughout, I'll be giving application. Because as we say in SBS, application is the goal of Bible study. And it should always be our goal when we study the Bible. So today, as I said, we're going to look at the book of Philippians at the end of chapter 1. Um, but I want to start off with a, with a question uh, to ask, a uh, question thing of, think of four or five, uh, a few of your most valuable possessions. Things that, uh, things that make, that significantly impact your life that are just the most valuable. Uh, mine would be uh, my car. It would be very difficult to be in Montana without uh, my vehicle, uh, my computer to take notes and to write PowerPoint. Like those are my most valuable possessions that I have. So just take a moment and think of four, five, three, seven. <laughs> okay. So we're going to transition into the book of uh, Philippians. But one important thing to remember, and something we will very often say in the SBS, is the Bible was not written to us, but it was written for us. Meaning, the Bible doesn't directly, everything in the text doesn't directly impact our lives. It was written to a specific audience for a specific purpose, but there are truths and there are things that still apply to today, but not necessarily everything is to us, but everything is for us to learn and to gather. So one of the most important things that we, that we dive into using Bible dictionaries, uh, uh, archaeological Bibles, is the recipient, the author, the recipient, and the time of date. So Philippians, who was Philippians written to? The background of Philippi, uh, it was located on the Via Ignatia, the Ignatian Way, which was Rome's main trade route from the west to its eastern provinces. A little bit of the history is in 356 BC, Philip II seized gold mines uh, near the site of Philippi uh, and laid claim and named it after him, Philip Philippi. Makes sense, I guess. <laughs> in the second century BC, it started to be, um, it got conquered by the Romans and they, they started to settle it. And then the big one in 42 BC, um, there was a civil war that broke out after Julius Caesar was assassinated. And Octavian and Mark Antony defeated Cassius and Brutus 
and uh, took control and named it, uh, or took control, and that was one of the last major battles of that civil war. Later, another battle was fought by Octavian, and he named it, uh, named the city of Philippi, the Colonia Julia Augusta Philippinesis, which is basically the, the important thing about that is the Colonia. It became a Roman colony. So as a Roman colony, it had all the rights and privileges of being a Roman citizen. Being a Roman citizen is a big deal because Rome is the leading power at the time, right? So if you, if you are part of the greatest empire on the earth at that time, and you are a citizen of that empire, that gives you certain rights. Uh, voting rights, you get to buy property, you're exempt from, from certain taxes, um, you're also exempt from crucifixion and scourging, you cannot uh, be put to death without a fair trial, um, and you can appeal to Caesar. And if you know some of the New Testament, you actually see that Paul uses just about all of these things, um, except maybe the taxes, but he uses a lot of those things in different ministry moments. He appeals to Caesar in Acts. So there are a lot of rights, and it's a really good thing, a uh, very comfortable thing to be a Roman citizen. And as a Roman colony, it was extremely patriotic. Latin was the main language to ensure that it remains Roman and patriotic. So, they, that is who the recipient is. The book of Philippians is written to a city, Philippi, that is a Roman colony full of old veterans and Roman citizens that have all of these rights. So that is the recipient of the book of Philippians. So let's transition into reading the text itself. So starting in chapter 1, verse 27. Paul says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. So we see, so looking at verse 27, we see that Paul actually, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come to see you or I'm absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, one mind, striving side by side. So Paul actually equates a life worthy of the gospel with the Philippian church being unified. One mind, one heart, striving side by side. There's this unity and a life worthy of the gospel. So, Paul correlates a life worthy of the gospel as being known as unified. And being unified leads to strength against those who would attack the gospel, their opponents. A clear sign of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. So, I, what, what, I see Paul is, what I see Paul is connecting is you have a life worthy of the gospel with unity and strength to defend it from those who would attack it. So a unified church leads to an effective church. A unified church means an effective church. And you'll actually see in the New Testament, almost every single book, either Paul, Peter, John, it's all calling 
Almost every single one of them calls for unity. You're gonna, you're gonna be attacked. You're gonna have bad things happen. You're gonna have these issues in your church, but you need to be unified. It's one of the scarlet threads that you can trace throughout the entire New Testament is this call for unity. And if it's in just about every single book, it's probably an important thing for us to really understand and for us to hold on to. So Paul calls for unity, but he doesn't just stop with a call for it. He continues by giving ways to be unified and why they too should seek those areas. So in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, Paul goes, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So we see in Philippians 1, 27 and 28, there's this call for one mind, same mind, striving side by side. And then in chapter 2, he says, complete my joy, same mind, same love, full accord, one mind. So already, there's, there's already seven calls for unity in ten verses, give or take. So this is a key thing that he is, that he is, um, that he is pointing into, that, he is, uh, that he's grasping onto, is this idea of unity in them. And one thing that you'll notice in 1 through 4 is any encouragement in Christ, comfort from love, participation, and affection and sympathy. There's four, there's four things that Paul, that Paul lists out. And then in chapter, in, or sorry, in verse 2, he says, same mind, same love, full accord, one mind. So he gives four, and he, and he responds with four. So any encouragement, uh, be of the same mind. Any comfort from love, be of the same love. Any participation in the spirit, be in full accord. And any affection and sympathy, uh, any affection and sympathy, uh, full accord and one mind. So there... There is, this, there is this driving home, this beating, the beating it dead of you need to be unified. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but count others more significant than yourselves. So Paul, Paul correlates unity and striving together with, with, with side by side, being of full accord in one mind, with this idea that you cannot be selfish. There is no room for pride or conceit. There's no, room for, there's no room for putting yourself first. They're called to look out for others' interests and needs and desires, not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. There's a call to put others first, not to seek to be trampled upon, but to look out for others, to compromise, to work together, and not just put yourself first but to look out for other people's interests as well. So I, what I see is Paul actually is saying this life worthy of the gospel is actually doing what Jesus did, dying to yourself and putting others first. But hold on a second. Who is this, who is this written to? Roman citizens. They didn't owe anything to anybody. 
They had all these rights and privileges. They, they were the cream of the crop. They were the important ones. They had freedoms. They had rights. They, they were to be served by the non-Roman citizen peoples that were around them. But Paul calls the Philippian believers to lay down their rights for those around them. He calls the citizens to not just lay down their rights to other citizens, but actually to the people who have no rights. Actually to the people who had nothing. But what right does Paul have to require this of them? And this is where we come to the main portion of, of Philippians. So this in Philippians 2, uh, 5 through 11, is something known as the Christ hymn. And this is the central point of the entire book. The structure of Philippians, if you, if you read in the Bible dictionaries or wherever, it, it, it's known as a radial structure. There's a centerpiece and everything rotates around it and everything points back. Kind of like a, a petals of a flower, if, if you will. So everything is pointing back, everything is revolving around this Christ hymn. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. This is the central point of the whole book. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by becoming the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So we're going to look a little bit more in depth in verses 5 through 8, what Paul is, is saying a little bit on a deeper level. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So Jesus is set as the example to follow. There's all these calls for unity already. There's this call to look out for other people's interests. And what does Paul give as the example to follow? Jesus. Okay, so it's not just you need to do what I tell you, you actually need to do what Jesus did. Jesus went there first, and Jesus went lower. Jesus went there first, and Jesus went lower. So as we look, as we continue, keep having this mind that Jesus went there first, and Jesus went lower. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, form here is the word, I don't speak Greek, but it's the word morph or morphe. This word appears in other, in other areas. But the problem with the form of God is the form of God is also the form of servant. So if it's just, oh, he was the appearance of a servant, then he was just the appearance of God. Which, saying that Jesus is not God is a very large problem. So, you, so anything that you ascribe to the form of God needs to be the form of a servant because it's the same word. So was he the likeness of God? No. Was he the appearance of God? No. I mean, uh, in part, but that's not, that's not all that he was. So the form of God is not a form or shape or object or external features but the very characteristics that are essential to make it that thing. So in other words, the form of God is the characteristics that make God, God, 
We're in Jesus. So the form of God is the characteristics that make God to be God were in Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. This equality would be to the greater or whole form of God, as well as the honors and of the state of being equal to God. So the rights and privileges of God were, were, were in Jesus, but he did not count that a thing to be grasped. He did not regard his divine prerogatives, his divine rights, as something to use for his own advantage. Christ doesn't consider holding or seizing his equality with God. And there's a quote from Charles Swindle that says, uh, Jesus did not take the attitude of a spoiled brat who basked in his own glory. And that, that is the imagery that Paul is saying. He had all of these rights and privileges. He had all these divine prerogatives. He's God. But he did not count that equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Jesus went lower. He emptied himself. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. Now, there, there, is some, there is some confusion of, like, what did he empty himself of? His divineness? His godness? No. He didn't empty himself of anything. He just emptied himself. Or, another way you can think about, he made himself nothing. He gave it all up. He emptied himself. He made himself nothing. Jesus went lower. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality of God a thing to be grasped. Though he had all of the characteristics of God that make God God were in Jesus, he did not take those rights and those privileges and those prerogatives as something to be used to his advantage. But he made himself nothing. By taking the form of a servant, his emptying was actually not any of subtraction, but an addition. Jesus added the form of a slave. Jesus became a slave. The, the characteristics that make God God were in Jesus, and the characteristics that make a slave a slave were also in Jesus. So his emptying of himself was not a subtraction of his divine nature, of his divinity, but it was an addition of a slave. citizens of Philippi. Jesus had all these rights and privileges, but he laid them down for you. Citizens of Rome, you have all these rights and privileges that you, that you could hold on to, but empty yourself. Everything that Paul is saying be thinking Roman citizens, all these rights and privileges, they're the cream of the crop. Why does this matter to them? So Jesus emptied himself by taking on the status, status and essence of a slave. And Jesus went lower. 
He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Excuse me. Being born in the likeness of men. This is another way, excuse me again, that Jesus emptied himself. Form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Likeness here, um, uh, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. This is not the same form, morph, or morphe, uh, of form of God and form of servant. This This is a likeness. So basically, he looked like a man. By all accounts, he was human. And Jesus went lower. Being found in human form, he humbled himself. The word humbled here is actually in verse 3 when it says, In humility, count others more important or significant than yourselves. This word, he humbled himself, is the verb form of the word humility in verse 3. So Jesus is, Paul is showing that Jesus lived out. Jesus went there first for them. So what he's calling them to is not something that Paul is claiming, you need to do what I say because I'm Paul. No, do what I say because Jesus did this. Jesus went there first, and Jesus went lower. By becoming obedient to the point of death, God, the divine, came down as a a human slave, as a human servant. The divine comes down and dies. The divine gave up for the creation. God Almighty gave up for his creation. But Jesus went even lower. By becoming obedient to the point of death, the divine gave up for the creation, even death on a cross. Now, a lot of you probably know that in that time, the cross was the worst the most shameful, the most hideous death that, was, that could be imagined. Rome only used the cross for, for uh, political terrorists, for uh, terrible criminals. It was the worst of the worst, the most shameful death imaginable. There's um, a quote from Cicero that he says, Cicero, a, uh, uh, I believe he was a poet, but um, a, an, an influential Roman scholar of some kind, says, far be the very name of a cross, not only from the body, but even from the thought, the eyes, the ears of Roman citizens. So you can see that the cross is viewed as something shameful, as something Awful as something disgusting. But Jesus was obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. So Paul is showing that from the form of God to the death on a cross, there's this progression of a downward step. Jesus went lower. 
Jesus went lower. Yahweh on the throne became Yahweh on the cross. The divine gave up for the creation. And I look at this, we look at the Christ hymn, and we see, we, we look around us. So to the Philippian church, what would this mean? These rights that they need to give up, these, these privileges that they have that they should sacrifice for the good of others. We look at it. Jesus went lower. Jesus became, went from Yahweh on the throne to Yahweh on the cross. And all these other, these other religions say that you need to, you are a man, and you need to do X, Y, and Z, and then maybe, if you're lucky, you'll be good enough to attain either godhood or to become like God, to be good enough for God. They say you have to do X, Y, and Z to, to attain that. But actually, we look at Philippians 2, 5 to 8, and we see that God actually went lower. God went lower and came to us. God came to us. He did everything for us so that we don't have to do anything because we can't. And that's, that's, the, that's the nature of it is we have no ability to do anything. It's only Jesus. It's only what Jesus did. And Jesus went lower. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow on heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Come on, that is insane. All right, what's insane is that it's actually Jesus' humility and his sacrifice that led to his glorification. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. Therefore, the what's the therefore, therefore, right? Even obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, because of that, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name. So Jesus' humility led to his glorification and ultimately part of God's redemptive plan to bring his people back to him for his glory. In Isaiah 45, 23, it's Yahweh speaking and he says, By myself I have sworn, for my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. So it seems that Paul, being the uh, biblical scholar that he is, is using this, uh, this idea of Isaiah 45, 23 and applying it to Jesus in Philippians 2. To me, so Yahweh in Isaiah 45 is saying, to me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. And Paul says, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. 
Yahweh on the throne became Yahweh on the cross. And because of that, he, in a sense, comes full circle, back to glorification. So his humility became his glory. I think that we can see that the humility is actually glory. That doesn't make sense. Sacrifice and serving is actually glory. But that is the upside down kingdom. Jesus comes and he brings this kingdom of God saying in Matthew 5 and in all these parables he says actually it's the one who serves. The least is the greatest. He brings this reverse view of what they are thinking. They're thinking Roman citizens or they're thinking overthrow Rome and bring us back to the Holy Land. But Jesus actually says, no, we're going to serve. No, we're going to sacrifice. No, I'm going to serve. I'm going to sacrifice. Following in the footsteps of Jesus is emptying ourselves and going low for others. And so, in light, in light of Philippians 1, 27, where we started, to where we are now, we see that Paul's call for humility is rooted, or sorry, Paul's call for unity is rooted in Christ's example of humility. So what does that mean for them? Christ's example is one of humility and sacrifice and going low. And this example should be one that unifies them. I think that something that they would see and that we can see is that unity is not achieved through selfishness, but through sacrifice. Just as Jesus sacrificed for us. So, if we look at the Christ hymn in new words, we can see uh, kind of a retelling of it as though he had the characteristics that make God God. He did not use those to his advantage, but made himself nothing by becoming a slave and being divine, traded that and gave, gave that up to become created. And furthermore, he humbles himself. He gives himself up for that creation to the point of death. The worst death imaginable. So, what does this mean to the Philippian church? You have all these rights, you have all these prerogatives, you have all these privileges. What are you going to do with those? Are you going to hold on to them? Are you, going to hold, are you going to grasp them and use them to your advantage? Are you going to follow the steps of Jesus who had infinitely more than you but gave it up for others? So remember the list of things that I had that um, I asked you to think of in the beginning that were most valuable to you. 
And I would ask, what if God is asking you to use those things for the benefit of others? One thing that, that um, Isabel and I have decided to do is when, when, we, when we leave places or if we have a spare, uh, if we have a vehicle to give, we let somebody use it for, for, no, for no extra cost because there are a lot of you know, missionaries, they either need a car or whatever. So we let them use it. Would it be better for us, would it be easier for us to, to um, not put the miles, not put the, the uh, for oil changes and all that? Would that be easier? Yes. But I believe that God has called us all to a life of generosity. Or maybe something you said had to do with your skills. One thing, that, one thing that I have that is very valuable to me is my concrete experience. Knowing how to do driveways and sidewalks and steps and whatever. Is God asking you to lay those things down for the sake of others? To use, or rephrase, to use them for the benefit of other people. In, in Montana, there's been several times where I've been asked to lay a sidewalk, do steps, do a, do a floor, that kind of thing. And I'm not setting myself up as, you need to be like me. But these are things, after teaching the book of Philippians in, in SBS last year, I felt like God was asking me to do these things without asking anything in return. Sacrifice for others. Or maybe some of the most valuable things to us are unspoken or subconscious. Maybe what is most valuable is our freedoms or our rights we believe we should have. So what rights do I feel that I personally, as I was praying about this, feel that I have? Well, I'm a missionary. I deserve housing. I, 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 I should get good housing at a great price, and God kind of owes it to me. See, it, it's laughable, but that's actually, that's actually how I was, that's actually what I thought. I'm looking at these people that, that live, that live in, this, in this great housing or have housing, and I'm like, I don't know. I feel like you should move somewhere else and give me that good housing because you have both of you have full-time jobs. So I actually deserve the house that you live in or the apartment that you live in. And that's a right or entitlement that I felt like I had. Or I felt like what I do is my business. They don't have a right to tell me what I do with my time. When it's my time, it's my time. My, my perspectives should be heard and valued. I get there, I'm the, uh, it's my first year on staff, and I have all these ideas of what needs to change and how things should be, and you need to listen because I know because I went through it. My perspective should be heard and valued. The prices of food and gas, I think that's something we can all possibly relate to. It's like, wow, this is really expensive. Wish it wasn't like this. I deserve better. I deserve it to be back to 199. Well, bless those days. Right? Well, anyway. <laughs> and in marriage and relationships, my opinions are the right one. This is one that 
a month and a week of marriage has really, um, has really already really punched me is, okay, the way I do things is not necessarily the right way. Or the way I do things is not the only way to do them. You can ask Isabella. We've, we've had some things about, she extends grace like none other, and I have things that I think are the best way to do it. Um, so these are, these are things like, I think I'm right. I have a right to do it this way. I've done it this way my whole life. But what does God say about those rights and privileges or entitlements that I have? I'm not actually owed anything. God will provide in his time, in his way, and I need to trust him for that. I need to actually look at what I do and see if it affects others in a negative way. It might be my time. I might, I, it might be my car. It might be whatever. But really, one, it's God's, right? But two, Christianity isn't lived in a vacuum. I don't live by myself and what I do doesn't matter. No one else should care. Actually, what I do matters and it impacts other people and am I living in such a way that what I do is being lived in thought of how it could benefit others? My perspective should be heard to value. Am I, actually, am I valuing other people's opinions? Am I valuing their perspectives? I can tell you I was not very good at that this year. Thinking I had all the answers and they needed to listen to me and I realized that I didn't really listen to them. I have a right or I have an entitlement to the prices and food of gas. And again, the Lord has told me I need to trust in him for provision, not in the government, not in all, all of these things. Although, um, obviously, how we vote in those things do have an impact and we should, we should be doing that kind of thing. But where is our hope? Where is, what are we trusting in? What am I trusting in? Am I trusting in the Lord? Am I trusting in my own abilities, my own perspectives? somebody else's impact on my life, who am I trusting in? And lastly, with the marriage and relationships, uh, there's exponentially more, but these are five. I need to sacrifice and go low for Isabel and others. I, just as Jesus went lower, so must I. As Jesus went lower, so must we. Let us be a people that sacrifice for others. Let us be a people that go lower for others. Let us be a people that lay down our selfishness and take up the cross of sacrifice. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What does this mean to the Philippian church is a great question to ask. But application is the goal of Bible study. What does Christ's sacrifice, 
Christ's humility, what does that mean for you? And what does that mean in your relationship with others? Because this is a call for unity, rooted in Christ's example of humility. So who, who do I need, who do we need to go low to? Who do we need to go lower for to bring unity among our relationships, among our families, among whatever it is. Let us be a people that lay down our selfishness and take up the cross of sacrifice. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for your example. We thank you that you didn't hold on to your prerogatives, but you gave them up for us. You gave them up for me. Thank you that you went lower. You went lower and lower and lower because you loved us. Would, we be a, would I be a person that responds in action, not passivity? Would I be a person that responds in humility and sacrifice for others above, above my own opinions, desires, entitlements? Would I be one that goes low just as you did? Would we be a people that lay down our selfishness and take up your cross of sacrifice. Amen. And uh, as Paul rejoiced with uh, the Philippian church in chapter 1, 4, and 5, so Isabel and I want to say thank you for your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Would you continue to partner in prayer with us as we come alongside this next generation and pursue a relationship with Jesus and his word so that he is known by all nations.